I'd encourage you to open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be continuing our series entitled Broken Church, and we finally arrived at 1 Corinthians 13. We finally arrived at the love chapter. It's been long expected, uh, so hopefully you've been looking forward to it as well. And as you're turning there, that's something I want us to consider in our time together this morning. I would wager that everyone here sees themselves at love, as loving. Yet we all know people that we would describe as unloving. Do we not? Let me describe this a little bit. Everyone sees themselves as loving. I would wager if I were to take a poll here this morning and I were to ask how many of you see yourself as loving, everyone's hand would go up. In fact, if I were to take a poll of probably the entire world, I would wager that the vast majority of people would think of themselves as loving people too. Yet, we also know this can't be true, because we all know people that we would describe as fundamentally unloving, do we not? All of us could quickly identify an individual we work with, or live with, or maybe attend church with that can't possibly be loving. And we all know individuals in history that couldn't have been loving as well. Think chiefly of you know, the caricature of Adolf Hitler. And yet, Hitler had a wife and children. It's so easy for us all to think of ourselves as unloving. But what gives? How is it possible for everyone to believe fundamentally that they are loving while so few of us actually seem to be that way? I would submit to you that as a culture, as a people, as humanity, we have engaged in a corporate romantic redefinition of love. Let me explain what I mean. We seek to define love by our feelings of love rather than by God's word. We make love out to be whatever feels loving to us. And as a result, love becomes more about who we are than who God is. Love is what we are, not what God defines love to be. And then as a result, naturally, whatever we find ourselves doing, whatever we find ourselves pursuing, that's loving, right? And as a result, we use love as the champion cry to justify and validate whatever we most want to do ourselves. Our love becomes individualistic. It becomes consumeristic. It becomes narcissistic. Our love becomes a form of self-expression that anyone who fails to affirm needs to be rejected. In a case we find ourselves thinking this is some sort of recent phenomenon in culture that can be blamed on everyone under the age of 30, let me remind you that the song All You Need Is Love was written in 1967 and initiated a herald cry for what historians have called the culture of narcissism. I would argue that what we need as a people and what we need fundamentally as a church is a new definition of love, a biblical definition of love. Like the Corinthians, we need a more excellent way. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read back through the last verse of chapter 12. So 12:31 through the end of chapter 13. Read with me in your Bibles. 
but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we've already sung of your love, your self-sacrificial love, your agape love that you chose to come to earth to die on our behalf, to shed your blood for our sake. We praise you for the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that we love because you first loved us. So as we study this passage here this morning, as we come face to face with your definition of love, I pray that we would have hearts that would be soft. Lord, help us to see what your word teaches. Help us to recognize how our hearts are inconsistent with that. And Lord, help us to aspire to become more like your son through the power of your spirit. Lord, guide our time here in your word this morning for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. Now, bear in mind that we are now reaching what I would call the climax of Paul's diverse letter in 1 Corinthians. It's been a long time coming but we finally arrived here. Paul has spent most of his letter critiquing the church's arrogance, their self-centered behavior through the lens of the gospel. Now he writes what we might call a prescription for the cure. Biblical, self-sacrificing, God-oriented love. But before we move into verse 1, I promised last week that I would deal with Chapter 12, verse 31, because we didn't have time to deal with it exhaustively. Let me see if I can't provide a little bit of clarity on this verse to lead into our discussion on love in verse or in chapter 13. Paul writes, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This verse, earnestly desire the higher gifts, has had a tremendous amount of ink spilled on it. And it may be one that you find a little bit confusing. This earnestly desire theme is to be understood as an imperative. He is telling us to do something. He is exhorting us to do something, to desire something. We see that repeated in chapter 14, verse 1, and chapter 14, verse 39, where almost the same terminology is used. So he says, earnestly desire something. 
But what precisely are we to earnestly desire? What precisely are we to seek, if you will? There are many opinions on this particular subject. Let me see if I can't give you some guidelines and then tell you what I think Paul has in mind here. First of all, I do not think that Paul can be speaking of love and what he's going to go to in chapter 13. And the reason I say that is because he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts, but nowhere else in Paul's letter does he refer to love as a gift. As we'll see as we walk through this text, love becomes the paradigm through which gifts are exercised. So I don't think he's speaking of a gift. I also believe he cannot be establishing a new pecking order, if you will. The Corinthian church was fascinated with the gift of tongues and the miraculous gifts, and everyone was aspiring to have that gift. And it would be entirely contradictory to Paul's entire argument if he was going to say, oh, it's not that gift, it's actually this gift that's the only one that's important. So we cannot be trying to establish a new pecking order, trying to create a new hierarchy of gifts. I also believe that he is speaking corporately when he writes this section more than individually. And I say that because if you go back to verse 27, he says, now you corporately are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He's giving an exhortation to the church gathered, to the corporate assembly of believers, and we tend to read this and assume he's talking specifically to me. So I don't think he's speaking of love. I don't think he's trying to establish some hierarchy of gifts where we're all supposed to aspire to, and I believe he's speaking corporately to the church. This is my understanding of what Paul is saying here, and I am open to being corrected on this if you want to talk after the service. I believe he is exhorting the church to corporately desire those gifts that will build up the whole body. He's telling them that their chief aim in exercising their spiritual gift should be to have the whole body built up, that they shouldn't be envying and being jealous of each other's gifts. They shouldn't be aspiring to be the most important person in the church. Instead, they should desire whatever gift it is that will build up the church as a whole. We're going to talk about that more when we get to chapter 14, so we'll come back to that. Because then he says, we have a bit of a divergence here where he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Let me show you a better way to behave than your current view of gifts in the church. And Paul begins his description of this excellent way by detailing the fruit of ministry given the absence of love. What does ministry look like without love? Look at verse 1 through 3. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Did you pick up on some themes there? If, then. If, then, if, then. This, must be the, this may be the most concentrated grouping of the word if in all of Paul's writings. Essentially, he says there's these six externally impressive ministries that this church must have been desiring. And I think there's likely some hyperbole here as he describes this, because he's trying to say, even if you were the most amazing Christian who has ever lived, and you have the capacity to do absolutely everything in the church, without love it would be nothing. He says, if you have angelic and human tongues, remember the Corinthian church was infatuated with the gift of tongues. They all wanted to be able to speak in tongues. And he says, even if you could speak with the tongues of angels and can speak in every human tongue, in every dialect that's ever been in existence, it would just be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. 
He goes on, it says, if you have prophetic powers, if you can prophesy and understand every part of Scripture and speak with authority and confidence and convey the message of the text with incredible power and timeliness, what would that result in? If you could possess all understanding and all knowledge, remember the Greeks and the Romans were fascinated with understanding and they were unfascinated with knowledge. Remember their fights from earlier in the book where they were like, I want that gift, I want that gift, and oh, that guy's really smart, so I'm going to follow him. It says, so what if you have all understanding and knowledge? What if you had the power, the faith to move mountains? Can't help but think of Jesus' words. I think it's in Matthew 17, right, where he says, where if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, go and move. He says, even if you have that capacity, you have the faith to command mountains to move, what does it accomplish? And this one is a little bit hard for us to understand. If I give away all I have, think of the righteous young ruler, right? His issue was he wasn't willing to give away everything he had. And he said, even if you had this incredible gift of giving and you were willing to sacrifice everything you had, or even if you were willing to go to the stake to have your body burned, saying even if you were the most amazing Christian that ever lived, even if you were to accomplish whatever you wanted to in ministry and were able to do all of these incredible things, what would that mean without love? And we find ourselves reading through this list and we're kind of awed and astonished, aren't we? We're like, I kind of wish I could do those sorts of things. As I was preparing for this message, I was finding myself going, you know, it'd be kind of nice to have all prophetic powers and all understanding and mysteries and knowledge. It would have come in really handy to not have to study it all this week and just be like, hey guys, this is what it says. Right? It would have been really nice when we wanted to put a new roof on the building to say, hey, somebody with that gift of mountain-moving faith, you, you want to just arrange a new roof for us? But what is the result of even these amazing works apart from love? It says, Corinthian church, you're so infatuated with these gifts even if you could do everything you ever wanted to do and had all the capacity you long for, it would be nothing without love. So, so let's say for a moment you can speak in whatever tongue you want. Without love, you are a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Have you ever been around one of those? Have you been in a marching band or in a similar sort of environment? Or maybe you have an aspiring drummer in your household. Have you ever tried to have a meaningful conversation while that individual is practicing in the house? I know now they have those amazing electronic ones. You know, you can have the headphones on, it's great. I'm sure that saved a lot of conversation between parents and kids over the years. My younger brother was a drummer growing up. And I know from a, or for a fact from experience that even just one drum even just one snare drum is enough to put mute on the rest of the household. The noise drowns out anything else that's going on. He says, so, so let's say for a moment that you could speak with the tongues of angels. Let's say for a moment you could speak with power and authority. And people would be like, man, that guy is amazing. Without love, you're just a clanging cymbal. You're not communicating anything, you're not helping anyone, you're not doing anything of value. He goes on and says, so you have prophetic powers, so you can understand the mysteries, so you can move mountains without love, you are nothing. 
So you give up everything you have. So you go to the stake to have your body burned. Without love, you gain nothing. Saying this church has sacrificed love for the sake of the gifts that they were so impressed with. And they thought they were accomplishing something of incredible significance for God. And Paul is writing to them and saying, if you go about it that way, you are accomplishing nothing. Have you thought about the fact that it is possible to minister and to serve and to even go to the stake to be burned and have it be of no value? Ministry without love is noisy nothingness. And in that way, it's similar to anemia. Are you familiar with the concept of anemia in medical terms? Anemia is when for either the way you were born or because of some medical diagnosis, your blood isn't able to produce enough red blood cells. And as a result, your, the red blood cells are the part of your blood that takes oxygen to all the different parts of the body, right? And so when you don't have enough red blood cells, your body isn't giving enough or getting enough oxygen and the parts aren't working correctly. The oxygen is like this life source that makes the rest of the body function correctly. Ministry without love is a noisy nothingness. The body without love is anemic. Every single part will fail to function the way it's intended to function. It won't be able to do anything or go anywhere or achieve anything without the lifeblood of love. If you recall from a couple of summers ago, it's just like the church in Ephesus from Revelations 2, 1 through 7. Remember, Paul's words to this church is, you have lost your first love. And he calls them to repent or he will remove their lampstand. Their lovelessness was so serious that John, speaking for Christ to the church in Ephesus, says, I will remove your lampstand and your witness because you are loveless. Love must be the motivation for our ministry. It gives our ministry significance. It gives our ministry impact. To think that we are accomplishing things for the purposes of Christ, that we are ministering in power and with authority and doing incredible things without love is an exercise in futility. And consider this for a moment for yourself. As an individual believer in the church, you can serve in 12 ministries in the church. You can be here eight nights a week and volunteer on the weekends. If self-aggrandizement rather than love is your focus, it means nothing. You can kill yourself for the sake of the ministry. You can do all sorts of incredible things, but if it's about you and about the praise you receive from others and about the way you look to others, it means nothing. As a church... We could plant 10 churches in 10 years. We could dedicate half of our year's budget to foreign missions. If it's about what we have accomplished, rather than love for the lost, it would mean nothing. Is love the motivation of all your ministries? 
Is love what motivates you to minister to others inside and outside of the church? If not, I would encourage you to pray that God would stir that in your heart. It's no coincidence that in Galatians, Paul writing says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It starts there. And it's a product of the Spirit's working in your heart. Ministry without love is nothing. But in order to be a motivation for ministry, love must first capture our own hearts. So Paul digs a little deeper here, and we see the evidence of love in verses 4 through 7. I want to read this text, but since it's such a familiar text, and you've heard it so many times at weddings, inappropriately, I might add, I want you to listen to this text and listen for how Paul addresses the issues we've seen in Corinth over the last 12 chapters. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Here Paul details how the love ought to be evidenced in our attitudes and actions. He looks at the Corinthian church and he says, you think you're doing amazing things in ministry. Oh, and by the way, you're probably defining what you're doing as loving. Let me give you a new definition for what love looks like in attitude and in action. Now, I'm not going to walk through these one after the other. I'm actually going to try to have us consider them first in attitude, the attitudes he recommends or that he talks about, and then the actions, how those manifest themselves in our behaviors. Okay, so I'm going to skip around here a little bit, but try to follow with me. Paul begins with the positive attitudes. He says love is patient and kind. Patience means valuing another person's time above your own. Giving preference to them over preference to yourself. In our household, we have a saying we like to use with our children. We say, what is patience? And we say, patience is waiting without fussing. And that's an important caveat. It's not just waiting. You can sit there and you can grumble and you can gripe and you can complain. That is not patience. Patience is choosing to wait without fussing. And I realize, okay, so what's fussing? Grumbling, complaining, fighting, right? Like, patience is choosing to value another's time above your own. Love is not just patient, it is also kind. It values the other person's feelings above our own. It chooses to say, I'm more concerned with being kind to this person than I am with getting my own way, with doing my own thing, with moving forward. And then he shifts to the negative. So love is patient and kind, and that means that love is not arrogant or rude. Again, this is an arrogant church he's speaking to. Arrogance is when you see yourself or your contributions as more important than all the other people's. Your participation as more valuable than everyone else's. And as a result, you are rude, you look down on everyone else, right? The church said, your teachers aren't as good as mine. 
Your gifts aren't as good as mine. Your discernment and wisdom isn't as good as mine. They were arrogant, and they were rude, and it was causing fractures in their church. It says, love is not arrogant or rude. It is not irritable. It is not easily annoyed or angered. Is this your definition of love? Are you easily annoyed or angered with other people inside the church or with people outside the church? With that driver who cuts you off on your way to McDonald's? Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. So it's not easily annoyed or angered, and it also doesn't hold on to offenses. It doesn't remember when it's been harmed. It chooses, not accidentally, it doesn't say love is just got memory loss. You know, love just has short-term memory loss. No, love chooses to not remember offenses. Love chooses to say, my offenses are greater than probably even that person's. And so it holds a short list of the way it's been wronged. These are the attitudes of love. And it stands to figure that these sort of attitudes would then translate into actions. What actions does Paul start with? And this time I want to start with the negative because that's where Paul begins. So he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. Envy isn't hard to define. We know what envy is. Envy is wanting what someone else has. But envy is also one of those acceptable Christian sins. It's one of those aspects that we go, that's not really a big deal. I mean, envy is basically the American dream, right? Envy is not a big deal. And yet I would submit to you, think about on some of the more well-known fables, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, others. What was fundamentally the wicked stepsister or stepmother's problem? Was it not envy? And as a result, they're dubbed the wicked stepsister or stepmother. Envy will lead to all sorts of incredibly unloving behaviors in your life if you allow it to foster and fester. If you say, that person doesn't deserve that as much as I do. Love does not boast. It is not self-aggrandizing. It is not self-exalting. It does not say, I've got it all figured out and all of you need to fix your issues. Precisely what the church was doing. Right? It does not envy. It does not boast. It does not insist on its own way. This is where it starts to get infinitely practical and we go, Paul, would you quit talking like this? It is human nature to insist on our own way. It is human nature to not be open to being wrong and not being open to not having our opinions taken. Do we find it offensive when someone does something in the church and they don't consult us? Do we find it offensive when someone asks our opinion and doesn't take it? Do we insist on our own way? And then I think this one is critical. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. We go, no, 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 no. We're biblical Christians. We don't rejoice in wrongdoing. We don't rejoice in evil. But when somebody begins to tell you something negative about someone else, do you find that offensive? Or do you find yourself enjoying it? When you hear bad news about someone you have envied and someone you wish would be brought down a peg, 
Do you find yourself going, no, 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 that's, that's evil? Or do you find yourself going, no, 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 tell me a little bit more, I'll pray for them? Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It does not celebrate evil, particularly when it is shared, but it rejoices instead, he shifts to the positive, with the truth. Love celebrates when the truth comes out. Love loves it when the truth is discovered. And then he lists this grouping of four issues. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I think all of these go together, partially because in the Greek, there's kind of a rhythm to the way they, the words sound the same. And I think there's actually two couples that kind of go together. I think believe, or bears and endures are kind of the same idea, and believes and hopes are kind of the same idea. So it bears all things and endures all things. That means, that means, and this is where this gets really hard, it suffers and chooses to forgive. It endures the suffering, the wrong, the pain, the offense, whatever the case might be, and it chooses to forgive instead of becoming bitter. It bears all things. It carries the weight for other people. It believes and hopes all things. Love has an optimism to it, even when it's been wounded. It chooses to believe that the Word and the Spirit can change people's lives, even when it's been hurt. Do you find that one difficult? To not be cynical and skeptical of other people when they've hurt you? I would confess that this text has been personally convicting to me over the last couple, three years. It has been a real challenge for me to believe all things and hope all things. As one decision after another, we're challenged in the church. That God can change my heart and he can change other people's hearts too. It is such a struggle for us to believe that things can change. And yet fundamentally, if we find ourselves getting skeptical and thinking that the word and the spirit can't change a person's heart, we're rejecting the gospel. If the gospel had the power to change our heart and to change our behavior and to move us from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, we must believe it has the power to change other people. And we can get so cynical at times thinking, oh, that person will never change. Love believes all things and hopes all things. In short, I think what Paul is saying is our love must be cruciform. Our love must be shaped like the cross of Jesus Christ. It must be shaped in such a way that we go into environments knowing we're going to get hurt and choosing to love anyway. It must be willing to lay down our own desires and say, Father, not my will but yours be done. Jesus knew precisely the cup of wrath he was going to drink. And yet he walked down the hill and he went up the hill and he let himself be hung on the cross. At any moment, he could have stopped it and said, that's enough. And Paul is calling us to a Christ-like love. Paul is saying, you don't get to redefine love in your own image. Christ has 
done that. He has personified that. He has been that in every possible way. Our love must be defined by these sorts of attitudes and actions. You can call whatever you're doing love, but unless it looks like this, it's not love. It makes me think of a... Have you ever heard of dairy-free cheese? Okay? When our oldest son was nursing, my wife had to go on a milk-soy protein intolerance diet. We couldn't eat anything, is basically the way it worked, because there's soy in everything. But specifically, I remember this moment where we're like, okay, you can't eat dairy, okay? So we have to avoid this thing, and we're going, well, we put cheese on everything. I don't know if it's just us or if that's an American thing, but we put cheese on everything. We're like, okay, so we have to figure this out. Like, what are we going to do? So we get to the store, and we see the bag, and it goes to dairy-free cheese. Oh, well, that sounds like a great idea. Can't eat dairy, but I can eat that. It's cheese. I'll make it work. I assure you, it is not cheese. <laughs> Just for the record, I apologize, those of you that are out there, if you're dairy intolerant. I really, I feel for you. They may call it cheese. It isn't cheese. They may package it to look like cheese. It isn't cheese. We may call it love. If it's not this, it's not love. You can package it and try to sell it as love, but if it's not God's definition of love, it's not love. See how Paul is backing the Corinthians into a corner here? Think all of these fights, all of these things that you wrote to me about in your letters, I can see that the heart of them is a loveless, self-righteous arrogance. So he says, remember this is in a section where he's talking about how the church is to behave when they gather together. He says, love must therefore be the aim of your assembly. When you come together as a church, love must be your focus because it prevents divisions, the divisions that are plaguing your church, and it helps heal them when they arise. Love must be the aim of our assembly. Do some self-assessment here. Imagine yourself on a Sunday morning walking into church and Think through each step of the process. When you get out of your car and you walk in on a Sunday morning, trying to figure out where to sit, trying to figure out how to get coffee, and the line is long and all of those sort of things, is patience and kindness at the top of your list? Or is it, why did that person sit in my chair? Why isn't the coffee hot enough this morning? Why didn't that person greet me when I walked in? Is your love patient and kind? As we sing songs that we don't know or sing songs that are liked by other people in the church and aren't our biggest favorite, do we find ourselves being irritable and resentful? Do I wish Troy would just sing those songs I like? Why does he have to sing such an old song? I don't even know that one. Are you easily annoyed? And do you find yourself being resentful? When we are wandering around the halls and we run into someone and they're inclined to share one of those private prayer requests, you know, don't tell anybody about this, but I've been praying for this person. We say, yeah, let me, let me pray for them too. Are we rejoicing at wrongdoing or are we rejoicing at the truth? Do we rejoice when the truth comes out? 
Or do we want to see those people we don't like taken down a peg? As we pray together as a church and for others in the church, do you bear all things? Do you believe all things? Do you hope all things? Do you endure all things and pray that God would change the hearts and the lives of those people that you struggle the most with? As a church, when we gather together, is our church love evident? Is it tangible? Is it honest? Is it inviting? If someone were to walk into our church, would they say, that is a loving church? The stakes are incredibly high in this regard. In John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus tells his disciples this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, that's the cruciform aspect, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. If someone that doesn't know anything about church and doesn't know anything about the gospel and doesn't know anything about what our church believes walked in this morning and saw our behavior Would our love be so evident, so tangible, so honest, so inviting that they couldn't help but say, those people are different. Those people are disciples of Christ. They have no reason to get along with each other, but they do. Is love your aim when we assemble? Is love at the top of your priority list as you walk in on a Sunday morning and as you interact with the church throughout the week? If not, Paul's call is for you to repent. None of us is perfectly loving. None of us is instantaneously transported to a position where we're exactly like Christ. That doesn't happen in this life, which means all of us are going to fall short of being perfectly loving. But if we choose instead to redefine love by the way we are, rather than saying God's standard for love is this, I need to pray and aspire and repent of my sin when I don't get there. It's never going to change. So if if love isn't the aim when you assemble together as a church, repent. Finally, Paul gets to the heart of the diagnosis The Corinthians fundamentally have a vision problem in addition to their heart problem. So he reminds them of the endurance of love. The endurance of love in verses 8 through 13 here at the end. And Paul kind of drops his trump card, reveals his whole hand here in verse 8. He says, love never ends. Love never ends. He speaks of love's eternality. He says, what you need, Corinthian church, is you need just a little bit of perspective. You need a little bit of a longer vision on what this looks like. He says, love never ends. And then he reminds them of the fleetingness of gifts. He reminds them of the transient nature of childhood. And he reminds them of dim mirrors, all to emphasize that there's an eternality to love. Let me walk through these. He says, you need a little bit of perspective. First, you need to understand how fleeting these gifts that you're fighting about are. He says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues that you're so thrilled with, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. He's saying all of these gifts that you're fighting over, they're going to come to an end one day. But 
But, he says in verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And we go, what? Huh? Okay. I don't have time to deal with this as thoroughly as I would like to. There are those that would make an argument from this text that what the partial is here is speaking to the reality that some gifts will come to an end when the, the apostolic ministry ends and the canon is closed. Okay? I'm not here to get into a bait over cessation or continuation of gifts, but I don't think we can argue for the cessation of gifts from this text, because I don't think that's what Paul is trying to get at here, because he's trying to point their eyes forward, he's trying to have them look forward to a day when the gifts will all come to an end, and all of a sudden they will see that love will last forever. He connects it with verse 12 when he says, for now you see it in a mirror dimly, Excuse me, go down to the end. Now I know in part, for I shall know fully, even as I have been known fully. When will we know fully? He points their eyes to a future reality. But in addition, so he says they need this increased understanding, this increased knowledge. He also says, walk away from your childish ways. Look at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I grow up, when I become a man, I gave up my childish ways. So you also need an increased maturity. You need a vision for the future. There's this process of moving from childish ways to moving to adult ways. That will happen one day. As a side note from this, let me just speak to you kids. There is an implicit assumption in Paul's comment here that children's aim is to grow up. You are to grow up. It is a necessary part of being a child. Your aim, as boring as it may sound, ought to be to become an adult. It's implicit here. Your aim isn't to stay a child as long as you possibly can. Just throwing it out there. He says there needs to be an increased maturity. We're looking forward to an increased maturity. And then lastly, he says there's these dim mirrors. And this is an interesting illustration. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. If you don't know anything about ancient mirrors, ancient mirrors didn't have the technology that we have today to make a reflection look as good as it does, which means ancient mirrors were essentially just really polished metal. So when you looked into an ancient mirror, you got kind of a generic idea of what you looked like, but it was a vague reflection of what you actually looked like. He says it's like looking into one of those mirrors where you can kind of see where things are going, but you don't have a full understanding of what things look like, saying one day we will see love face to face. And at that moment, the vision will be clear. Someday, and I believe what he's speaking to here is when Christ returns, when we see Christ face to face, all of a sudden we will have all the knowledge we ever wanted. We will have the sort of maturity and sinlessness that we've longed for. We will have a vision of what things are supposed to look like. What he's saying is love has an eternal, enduring effect. He's saying love will outlast these spiritual gifts you're fighting about because they won't be necessary when Christ returns. Think about it. All of these gifts that they were fighting all over, all of these things they were seeking to do, none of it will be necessary when Christ returns. It matters now, but we need an eternal perspective on it. And the whole point is punctuated here by love's greatness in verse 13. So now faith... Hope and love abide, 
these three, but the greatest of these is love. Speak to the greatness of love. He says, faith will abide. He's saying this faith that we place, this goal of seeing Christ one day, our faith in his justification for us, it will abide. This hope to a future glory, a future reality that we don't yet see face to face, that we don't yet see with our eyes, will abide. But love is the greatest of these. Why? Love is the greatest because it is the end, it is the goal, it is the point of our faith and our hope. Because our faith and our hope is placed in one day seeing Christ. And when we see him, that love will be fully realized. That love will be fully understood because he'll be here. He's saying love must be the point of our perseverance. It must be what drives us to the end. It must be what the focus of our life is. It must be who the focus of our life is. In order to evidence love in our lives so that it motivates our ministry, that love must be grounded and focused on Christ. He must be the source and the center of our love even for one another. Any love that isn't first and foremost grounded in God's love for us will ultimately prove self-serving. It will be individualistic. It will be consumeristic. It will be as long as you make me feel loved, as long as you do what I think love should be, as long as you fulfill me, we'll say we're in love. But the moment... You break that. The moment you let me down, the moment you don't fulfill my expectations, I'm going to cut you off and be done with you. Instead, if our love is focused on Christ, if our love is an overflow of our worship of Christ, we can love God and we can love other people regardless of the way they respond to us. But that love must be an overflow of our love for Christ. So ask yourself, is my love and service to others grounded in my love for Christ? Is it an overflow of my worship of Christ? Or is it dependent upon their performance and my evaluation of them? Does your love serve as the point of your perseverance? as the trajectory of your life, as the direction that things are going, as unto Christ himself. If not, put your attention back on Christ. If you have gotten focused on yourself and gotten focused on your frustrations with others, you have taken your eyes off of Christ. But as long as you keep your eyes and you're focused on Christ, looking forward to the day when you will one day see him face to face, You'll be free to love others without evaluating them. Paul's message here is critical for us to understand. Because he's not speaking of love in some strange or bizarre way. He's not speaking of love in the way our culture defines love. He's speaking of biblical, self-sacrificial, God-oriented love. And he says this type of love is the lifeblood of the body of Christ. This is the sort of love that gives the body its ability to minister. 
It gives that ministry significance and impact. It makes it matter. This kind of love prevents divisions and heals them when they arise. This type of love is the goal, the aim, the point of our perseverance because this type of love will endure forever. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Our hearts so naturally say, you're holding out on us. We know something better. We know a better way to define love. And so we evaluate you and we evaluate others by our definition and our standard of love. I pray that you would break us of that habit. Lord, that you would show us what cruciform, Christ-centered love looks like. And more than just seeing it, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. These exhortations here are so practical. And we're tempted to justify and explain away our unloving behavior, particularly in the body of Christ. So we pray that as a church, as individuals and as a corporate church, we would be a church that is marked by love that we would seek to love others here and those outside the church with a love that is motivated by a worship of you. Father, give us a love that looks and acts like what we've seen here. For your glory and the sake of the lost. In Christ's name, amen.